0: Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Tonight is Trunk or Treat, and this is My family's first trunk or treat, so we did a trial run yesterday. There it is, everybody. That's right. She is adorable. Here's what I've learned so far is we a kid. I don't know how long this lasts, but utter elation and utter despair are always just a second away, you know? So I'm, I'm not quite sure if she's really happy or really sad or just getting into character and roaring. I don't know what's going on there, but we're going to be excited. We're going to be there tonight, and she's going to be making that face with that costume. All right, everybody? It's going to be great. I bring that up because I love the tradition that surrounds holidays. I love the tradition that surrounds family rhythms. We've been talking in my family about dressing up our two-month-old into a costume and sitting at our porch swing and scaring the other little children that walk by, you know? And, and why we say that is we're in the middle of a series called Family Rhythms on the Beatitudes. And we say it every week because it's very important, but... Beatitudes lead towards a certain kind of action and that action doesn't merit favor with God, it simply shows that we know who God is. And today that's really important because today's beatitude, if you're not careful, can sound a lot like God does something for you if you do something for him. And so each week what we've done, so you can get to know the staff a little more and we can laugh together, is we've shared different family rhythms from from our staff. Because our family rhythms are nothing else but they point us towards the kind of family we want to be. We highlight and repeat the good things about our family. And we've shared stories about Delin and how her family rhythms had to change as her family changed. We shared stories about Stephanie Thrasher, who's our comm director, about how she has a wholly unattainable Christmas tradition that made us all feel a little guilty, right? Which is good. It's church. And then this week, I want to talk about Chantel's family a little bit. I don't know if you know Chantel. She's our our children's pastor. And look, I, I love that people are honest here. If you know Chantel, you know one thing about her, which is what she said. I'll read what she wrote. She said, look, we eat dinner around the table as much as we don't. We say prayers and sometimes we don't. We do a Christmas story on Christmas Eve. You know, she said, we do normal stuff, but there's one thing that is distinctly Bedlington. She said, the Bedlington house is just well loud, right? Very, very loud. And and if you know Chantel, you read this and think, yes, yes it is. Because I work three doors down and the walls are thin. She said this. She said, We're loud and we love music. We're in a large split level house, so you kind of have to be loud to be heard. And we love music and all kinds of music. In the car, we all sing along to every song, everyone. And I'm recently just realizing that this is not normal as Brett, my teenage daughter, becomes a teenager. We do this weird thing regularly. (laughs) Where someone starts singing a song loudly, and then from everywhere, from somewhere else in the house, from some other floor, someone joins in. It's like an unwritten rule of our home that you have to join in. And before you know it, the whole house might be singing along to a song from different rooms or even different floors in the house. That sounds exhausting, right? But I love it. It's what makes their family, family, And her kids and her husband and Chantel isn't loud because she wants to earn acceptance into the Bedlington clan. That's what they do because they are Bedlingtons, right? And so when we talk about the Beatitudes, fundamentally, especially today, we have to remember that God says, I'm going to change your heart. And your heart then changes your actions. It goes in that way, not the other way around. One commentator said it like this and I liked it. He said, the first thing is this. The Christian gospel places all its primary emphasis upon being rather than doing. The gospel puts a greater weight on attitude than upon actions. Jesus is going to talk about actions, but before he does, he describes character and disposition. A Christian is something before he does anything. And we have to be a Christian before we can act as Christians, the best part. We aren't meant to control our Christianity, for our Christianity is meant to control us. And I love that. Today's beatitude is, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And we're going to land the plane and the talk together with talking about what that means. But if we don't understand the nature of Christianity and the nature of what Jesus is saying in his beatitudes, it sounds an awful lot like, if we do, God will do to us. And so today as we start our conversation, we have to understand what it means to be a part of a family and what rhythms look like. Before we dive into Matthew 5, we're going to take some time and pray like we always do because we show up here for two reasons on Sunday. One is so we might know God more. We want you to leave this place with a fuller, bigger, hopefully better understanding of the character of God and we go to the Bible for that because that's what talks about him. But if we just know God and don't experience God, we are cold people that don't have compassion and so we also want to experience God. But if we just experience God and don't know God, then our experience is shallow. And so both those things happen in the space, we hope and we pray. But it's a two-way street, which means that I'm just not up here talking at you and you're trying to be entertained. This is something that we trust the Spirit engages with us together. So as we sit and we talk and we listen and we read, we trust that God is doing something in our souls. So we're going to spend some time and just pray for a second. I'm going to give you time to pray for you and your soul that God might speak to it and then to pray for me that He might use me. So let's pray together. God, I'm thankful for this space that we can gather in every week for these people. I'm thankful that you are a God of community and you gave us one another to remind us of who you are and give depth to our experience. God, I pray this morning as we open your scripture that we know you more, that you teach us more of who you are, that you give us a more exuberant pursuit of Jesus Christ. So I'd ask if you're comfortable that you take 30 seconds or so and just to yourself silently pray that the Spirit might speak to you this morning as you know God. I ask that you pray for me, that God speaks through me and that it might be good and edifying and encouraging and point people in the direction of Jesus and his family. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Matthew 5. We're going to be in verse 7. It starts like the ones have in the past. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. If you haven't made it out here in a couple months, you don't know what we're doing, we have this idea of blessedness that runs through the Beatitudes. And the way that we've defined blessedness is simply to be blessed is to find fulfillment in aligning your practices with God's principles. And that's important because blessedness is not one dimensional. It doesn't just mean happy and it doesn't just mean stuff and it doesn't just mean fulfilled. It kind of means all three. And why that's important is because if you live out God's principles but your life doesn't get tangibly better, we have to ask the question, is blessing still happening? And the answer is yes. So the point of the Beatitudes is when we live into God's principles, we see more of his family rhythms in the world around us, and that's a self-sustaining joy. You can have bad days and still be blessed. You can have bad days and still people, meek, reflecting God's character towards us and still find fulfillment. And what it does is it gives us sustainability as the family of God lives out the rhythms of God. So blessed are the people who are merciful. And why that's important today is this is one of those, like meekness was a few weeks ago, that seemingly doesn't make sense. Blessed are those who are merciful, especially in the first century culture. It was a Roman world, a Roman world that sought after power. It's why meekness made no sense. When we talked about meekness, we talked about it in the context of a Roman Jewish context that just wanted power and their ability to use their power for their good was the best good. And Jesus said, blessed are the meek, which means that you don't use your power for your good. You withhold your power for others, people's good, for the love of others. Radical concept. So if power is the best good in that culture, then you know what else is really good is justice. Because justice is the exercising, the right, by the way, exercising of my power. So Jesus steps into this place where we value power. And because we value power, we value justice. And he says, blessed are the merciful. And mercy is not enacting your justice when you can. And so he's sitting there talking to a Roman audience that heard this and said, that is not how we value things in this culture. A Roman philosopher said it well. He said, mercy is the disease of the soul. The end of that phrase is because it exposes your weakness. (laughs) So Jesus sits on a rock, and he starts teaching these people in a Roman Jewish context, and he said, let me tell you what's good and what's fulfilling and what brings joy, mercy. (laughs) And they probably looked at him like, I know, you know. And then if you extrapolate that out, mercy in the Jewish context was something they knew, but it looked like two primary things. Mercy was almsgiving and the pardoning of injuries. So pardoning of injuries is this, theme of forgiveness that's always intrinsic to what mercy is, but it's also like I give money to people that need money, blind people. I give money to people that don't have, beggars. I give money to widows. I give money to orphans. I give money. That's what's called almsgiving. And in the Jewish faith, they thought three things really brought about God's forgiveness. It was repentance, it was prayer, and it was giving. And so when they hear mercy, when Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, they probably thought, sure, I'll forgive a little bit, and yeah, I'll give some more money to poor people, right? But what Jesus does in the Gospels is expand upon their idea of what mercy is. What he's gonna do is add depth to a conversation that they thought was just one or two things, and he's gonna call them into something better. If you've got a Bible, we're gonna be in Matthew 18 today, because to flesh this out, there's a parable Jesus uses, and he's talking to his people. Um, We're going to be at 18. We'll start in verse 21. And like I said, part of the Jewish tradition of mercy was forgiveness. Those two things are tied together. And so Peter, at one point, it's just after a part of Scripture that's talking about what happens. There's conflict in the family of Jesus, in the body of Christ. And so Peter says, I got a question, Jesus. And this is in verse 21. He says, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother who sins against me? As many as seven times? If you don't know the culture, what happened was, it's taken out of Hosea and Amos, but um, essentially the rabbis of the day taught, as a Jew, a good Jew forgave up to three times. The fourth time, you are not obligated anymore to forgive. You were good Jew if you forgave three times, four or more, and let them go. Let them suffer the consequences of whatever they got themselves into. So Peter says, hey, if somebody sins against me, how many times should I forgive? And he's trying to be a little overachiever here, right? He says... I'm going to double it and add one, seven, right? You can see him looking at Jesus like, tell me I'm good. Like, tell me I'm great. It's this idea that he says, I just went above and beyond. Give me a gold star. And all the other disciples who are not overachievers are mad at Peter because he's the guy that asked if the teacher could collect the homework. But that's just my baggage, right? So he says, how many times should I forgive? Seven. And Jesus' response, I think, even makes Peter question what mercy is. He says this. Verse twenty-two. Jesus said to him, "Not seven times I tell you, but seventy-seven times. Some of your Bibles might say seven times seven or seventy times seven. And here's the point: is there's going to be some math today? The point is that Jesus didn't want you to do math. The point is that Jesus didn't say break out a calculator, use Common Core or whatever that is, and figure out the answer to the equations." His point was, I'm going to throw a number out that is so exceedingly over what you thought it was that will seem impossible to you. And then he does that in a parable. Let's pick up in verse 23. He said, for this reason, the reason being, Peter said, what does forgiveness, mercy look like? He said, let me tell you what it looks like. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is what he's talking about in the Beatitudes, it's the family of God. The kingdom of heaven is like this, a king who wanted to settle accounts with his slaves. As he began settling his accounts, a man who had 10,000 talents was brought to him. All right, So when he said he's going to settle his accounts with his slaves, sometimes we have to detach what we think we know from what the Bible says, and slavery there isn't what you were taught slavery is for us. A slave was somebody who indebted himself in this culture into someone else because they borrowed. They said, can I borrow? And he said, sure, you can borrow, but until you pay it off, I get a, I get a piece of the action, right? And so you have a guy that borrowed a significant amount of money from his Lord, and it says in the text that he wanted to settle accounts. And he said, so go to this guy, a man who owed him 10,000 talents." verse 25, because he was not able to repay. The Lord ordered him to be sold along with his wife, children, and whatever he possessed as repayment to be made. That was a just response to this guy's debt. Then the slave threw himself on the ground, said, be patient with me, for I, I will repay everything. I don't know if your Bibles have different verbiage around how much money this guy owed. So it says 10,000 talons, and a talon is 6,000 denarii, and a denarii is a day's wages. So what that means is, this guy owed 10,000 increments of 6,000 days' wages. Again, the point is not to do common core math. If we did, it'd be something like 60 million days of work, right? (laughs) That's about 160-some-odd thousand years if you worked every single day. The point is, Jesus... Picks In this parable, this number that is so outlandishly large that no one, no one could ever think he was being serious. No one could ever think this was an attainable goal. No one thought, if I just work really hard, I could repay that. The point of Jesus' numbers is to say, hey, look, this thing could never be repaid. And so the slave goes to his master and says, will you be patient with me? Will you forgive me? Verse 27, this Lord had compassion on that slave and released him and forgave the debt. So what we see, and it says it later on in our text, it says that this was an act of mercy. So let's talk for a sec about what mercy is. Because mercy is one of those words that gets jumbled around with other words. Mercy is often synonymous in our language and in the scripture, sometimes with compassion, with forgiveness, and with grace. So let's talk about the difference between grace and mercy because Jesus is saying, blessed are the merciful. And there's a nuanced difference. That nuanced difference sheds light on our family rhythms. So grace versus mercy. The simple answer is grace is getting something you don't deserve and mercy is not getting something you do deserve, right? So for example, I went to Moody Bible Institute and we had chapels four days a week because we really loved Jesus, all right? And... This is going to date me, but this was before iPads were like a thing and probably to this day because Moody believes in the honor system, which I very much appreciated as somebody who slept in a lot. Um, When you went to chapel, you didn't check in online. They had these clipboards around the outside of the auditorium, and you just went to your clipboard and just drew a line through your name every day for chapel, right? It really made it difficult to not just, you do something called the, um, you just cross your name off and then you dash, right? It really made it difficult not to do that. And I never, ever in my four years did that. Not once. Not ever, everybody. So I had a buddy of mine who, um, you got four chapel cuts a semester. You couldn't miss more than that. And uh, and what he would do is every day, (coughs) he would take like one of those thick Expo markers or, or sharpies or whatever it was, and he would just walk on the outside of the auditorium and just cross off random names, right? Just walk along. And it'd probably get three names in that one action, you know? And he'd call them grace cuts. He'd say, I don't know who I'm marking. I don't know who's going to get it. But just in case you didn't show up today and you could check how many cuts you had online, here you go. He gave people something they didn't deserve because he was kind. That is grace. This kind of idea that I have forgiven or I have given you something that you in no way deserved. In our story, grace would be if somebody else came along to the slave and said, here's 10,000 talents, give it to your master. I don't know you and you didn't do anything to deserve this. I'm gonna give it to you anyway. That is the grace of God. That is what happens when God says, I will show you love when you didn't do anything to deserve it, I just insert it in here. It's grace. Mercy is a little different. Mercy is my senior year in college. I Had a roommate my freshman year and then we didn't live together after that but we lived next to each other for the next four. And we were in a SIS Theo class together. It was my last class before I had to graduate. It's a three hour course and, and attendance was a thing at Moody, so you couldn't miss. But this prof, again, honor system, he just had you at the end of every week, he passed you an attendance sheet, and you wrote in the blank how many times that week you missed. So my buddy, he always probably, well, he just had somebody write zero every week for him, and he didn't go. And that's on him, you know what I'm saying? Uh, that's fine. Some weeks I did that for him, I'm working through it a little bit, you know? I, I like to buck the rules. And anyway, we were at the end of the semester, we had one paper due left, and and I was in the class, and I get called down front. I knew this prof really well. I took two other classes from him, all theology classes. And he said, Charlie, we got a problem. I said, what's going on? His name was Dr. Barbieri. I called him Lou, because uh, his first name was. And I said, hey, what's going on? he said, um, hey, your paper and my friend's paper um, are the same, and so you cheated. So I'm going to give you a zero, and you might fail my class. I had one class left to graduate, you know? <laughs> so so I, I said, Okay. And I leave that classroom and I called my friend and I said some encouraging, uplifting, nice things to him on the phone, you know? Turns out what he did was he went into my room when I wasn't there and he printed off my paper and changed some of the formatting and just turned it in, you know? Here's the difference between grace and mercy. Mercy is if I would have forgiven him because he committed an injustice against me. So Peter says, hey, how many times do I forgive my brother who sins against me? He deserved Justice. Mercy would have been me saying, Hey, don't worry about it. It's okay. Don't worry about it. I'll fail. You'll fail. It's okay. I, I forgive that debt. Mercy is me saying, You've earned this, but don't worry about it. Uh, Stott, or Sardia Carson says it like this the two terms are frequently synonymous, but where there is a distinction between the two, it appears that grace is a loving response when love is undeserved, and mercy is a loving response. Prompted by the misery uh, and helplessness of the one on whom the love is to be showered. Grace answers to the undeserving. Mercy answers to the miserable. The difference is, and one of the reasons why mercy is hard is because mercy is so often personal. Because somebody's done something wrong to you. Grace is good and grace is great and I live by grace but mercy is personal and mercy is oftentimes something where there is pain. And so the first thing we learn about mercy is mercy is an action that relieves the misery of sin in the lives of others. Literally what mercy is, is when somebody commits a sin against you, it alleviates that consequence or it alleviates that misery. We see it in a couple other places in the New Testament. Probably the most famous is the Good Samaritan. I don't know if you know the story, I'm going to summarize, the story about going there. You have a guy that's getting beat up within an inch of his life, left for dead on the side of the road. And he was a a Jew, and and you had two other Jews that walked by. In a modern-day language, they worked in churches. They worked for God in the temple, and the tabernacle. You had a scribe and a priest, the people, the professional Christians. They saw the guy being beat up. They saw him sitting there within an inch of his life, and they both walked right on by to the other side. And you had a Samaritan guy that walked by. A Samaritan guy who had no reason to love this Jew. If you don't understand the difference between a Jew and a Samaritan, Samaritans were thought to be the stepchildren of the Jewish people who took pride in who they were. So the Jewish people saw the Samaritans as watering down their lineage. It's something they took very seriously. They took it so seriously that if they walked to, you had Jews in Jerusalem and you had Israel and then you had Samaria right here. And what would happen is if they had to go over here, The Jewish people would walk completely around the country just so they wouldn't step a single foot in Samaria. They detested it so much. A Samaritan walks by a Jew. A Samaritan who'd been constantly beat down by the Jewish people walks by one of his oppressors. And if anybody had a reason not to stop and forgive, it's this guy. And he sees a Jewish guy sitting there and he stops. And it says in our text that he had compassion, again, same word used in Matthew 18, for Samaritan. I mean, for the Jewish guy that got beat up. Ferguson is a commentator and he says it like this, mercy is getting down on your hands and knees and doing what you can to restore dignity to a person whose life has been broken by sin. Mercy's hard and mercy's real. And one of the difference between mercy and grace is mercy is kind of the hands and feet version of what compassion looks like. Because in both of our texts, we've got to ask the question, where did, if mercy is relieving the misery of sin from the people around us, from the people in our world, where did mercy begin? And we see it in both our texts. In, in the, the one with the uh, Good Samaritan, we see that he had compassion in the, in the story in Matthew 18. He said, the Lord had compassion on the slave and released him and forgave the debt. What we see there is really two words in the Greek, the one for compassion and the one for mercy, and they're closely tied together. So mercy isn't grace, it's slightly different. It also isn't compassion, but it always involves compassion. Every time we see mercy, what we see is compassion in action. Compassion is a feeling, mercy is an action. So what we know about mercy is this. It is always, always something that we do. You cannot be merciful and not act. You can be compassionate and not act. you know So it's this idea. and he texted me yesterday about the shooting in Pittsburgh, because his dad is a Jew, and he goes to Temple and he lives in Pittsburgh. <laughs> and so he's texting me about it. And sometimes, we were talking about it yesterday, all you can do is send thoughts and prayers, and that's a good thing. That is a beautiful thing. I have compassion for those people. I can send my thoughts and I can send those prayers, and those are good. That is compassion. Mercy is action. So what Jesus is saying when he said, blessed are the merciful, is that I'm calling people that do more than just have compassion sometimes. And so there are times when we can only show compassion, and we can think, and we can pray, and we believe God does good things. But he says, my family will be known by action that begins with compassion. We know that God calls us to step into and to relieve the pain and the consequences of the sin of the people around us. And why it's difficult is because oftentimes it's painful for us. Blessed are the merciful. We see it a couple different times in the character of God. So mercy is an action that relieves the misery of sin. It's also compassion and action, and it's motivated by love. One of my favorite verses that involves mercy is Ephesians 2. It talks about how bad we are as a people and how much we've offended God by our sin. And he says, like the rest, you you were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for you, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. So when we talk about mercy, when we talk about compassion, we have to understand that it begins with God, who is rich in mercy. And just for a sec, I think we need to camp out on what it means to be rich in mercy, because Because I live in this country, because I live in this suburb, because we live in a meritocracy, because I'm a prideful individual, because I want to build things with myself and only by myself, because of all those things, asking for mercy is incredibly difficult. Because I believe somewhere deep down, even though I know it's not true, that asking for mercy sometimes, somewhere, somehow pains the heart of God. That asking for mercy somehow, God's like, fine, I'll give it again. But I'm really upset about it, you know? But throughout scripture, what we see is not a God who doles out mercy. It's a God who overflows in mercy. Psalm, put it like this in Psalm 86. You, O Lord, are a God of mercy and you're gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Somewhere along the line, I think we've painted the picture that God gives mercy because he has to and not because he wants to. That it's a chore, not a pleasure. (laughs) And that's too bad. Because I'm just beginning to learn what it looks like to give mercy to the people I love, to stop the people I love from being in pain. Uh, I don't know if I said this last week. The girl in the tiger costume went for a two-month checkup on Friday last week. And at two months, they stick needles in her legs right, they do this vaccination thing, and it's, it's terrible, and for the first time, I remember growing up, my parents believed in spankings, because I was a brat, and I remember growing up, they, was, handful, I was a big handful, middle child, need detention loud, all of the above, right, so they would, every once in a while, give me spankings, and they would say what I feel like you have to say as a parent before you give a spanking, so you, like, don't qualify as an abuser, like, this hurts me more than it hurts you, you know, but I never believed that. I always thought deep down, you're enjoying this because I'm making your life difficult, you know? And for the first time in my life, when my kid's in pain, I, I, I actually experienced as I'm looking around and she is crying after pain and everybody, the nurse and my wife, everybody's crying in the room at this point, I finally realized what it was like to actually say the words, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. We have a God that says, I am for justice, but I overflow with mercy. There's a difference. What that means is that if we believe God doles out mercy and, and, and willfully overflows with justice, we have to flip that. He says, no, no, I, I give justice because I am just, but I overflow with mercy. That means in the rock, paper, scissors game of mercy and justice, mercy wins over justice most of the time. Jesus said it in Matthew like this. In Matthew chapter nine, Jesus says to the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And why that matters is because then when we are merciful to others, we do not do it begrudgingly. We don't don't do it because we're beholden to it. We understand that God gives mercy greatly and cheerfully. And so then when we give mercy to others, it's not because we feel like we have to. It's a reflection of a God who gives mercy joyfully. And that's really one of the tensions for me. It says that like the rest, we were nature deserving wrath in Ephesians 2, but because of his great love, God who's rich in mercy. I think there's a tension between justice and mercy. You know? Meaning, we're a high justice culture, so is the Roman culture, because we're a high power culture, because we're a high individualistic culture. Which means that if I don't give justice, I feel somewhere deep inside that I'm betraying justice that I'm allowing bad behavior to continue. You know know what I'm talking about? Like if I was the Lord that had all this money owed to me, that if I don't hold this guy's feet to the fire because of it, he's just going to do it again. And so I need to hold his feet to the fire because justice breeds a better person because that's what tough love is. Right? Right? It's this idea that mercy and justice are almost almost always juxtaposed. Either I can be just or I can be merciful. And here's what I want to say about blessed are the merciful is God says, my people will be known for their mercy, but they can be just at the same time. And if you're like me and you're asking the question, when do I show mercy and when do I show justice? God says, I'm rich in mercy, but I'm merciful because of my great love for you in Ephesians 4 or 2. And so what we see is this idea that mercy is compassion in action, and it's motivated through the lens of love. The Bible was never written, so you could have a rule book for how to act in every situation. I kind of wish it was. We, we like to act like it is. We like to act like we like to act like we have kind of the playbook for. So if my kid does B, I respond with Y. You know. We like to act like God says, how do I know I'm good with God? I give, I give 10% and then I know I checked that box and God is good. We like to act like the Bible is a rule book for the way of life. And it's not. It paints a picture of the people we're supposed to become. And why that's a difference is because it leaves areas for decisions. <laughs> it doesn't say, hey, you know how to do this thing well. You know how to appease God. You know how to do mercy well. Nine times out of ten, show mercy. Then after you've done it nine times, then give justice a try, you know? So you can't go down the list and say, mercy, oh, this is a justice moment. Sorry about that, you know? (laughs) You're out of luck. If you were to ask next week, I'd be back to mercy. That is how we want the Bible to be, but it's not. It says this. It says you're going to be a people that overflow with mercy, and sometimes you need to enact justice, and you know what should be the litmus? Love. Love. What is the most loving thing for that person at that moment? So we spent the summer in the Old Testament where justice and mercy kind of intermingled together, where oftentimes God said, I'm not going to look at your sin. I'm going to overlook it. I'm going to overlook it. I'm going to overlook it. I can't overlook it anymore. You're, You're being somebody that I don't like anymore and that you don't need to be. This is not good for you. It's that idea that through the lens of love, God looks at us and says, man, I want to be merciful, but sometimes justice is the most loving thing for you. We are rich in mercy through the lens of love because that's how God loves us. That's how God is merciful towards us. So mercy then is describing the kind of person we're going to be. And if you're anything like me, I'm asking the question, well, then won't I get taken advantage of? Yes. Yeah, maybe. I read the Old Testament. And if I'm being honest, I see a God who was taken advantage of an awful lot by his people. I see a God whose people ran from him and ran from him and ran from him. And God said, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going I'm to have mercy on you. I'm going to have mercy on you. I'm going to have mercy on you. And I'm going to run towards you time and time again. I see a God who was taken advantage of. My whole point is I think there are worse things in the world than for people to know that they can maybe take advantage of us because we're merciful, that we relieve the misery of others, consequences of their sin, because that's what God did for us. Blessed are the merciful. And then it ends by saying, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. So mercy is an action that relieves the misery of sin in the lives of others. It's compassion an action that's motivated through the lens of or by love. And then finally, mercy is experienced. Mercy experience leads to mercy shared. Go back to our story in Matthew 18. It ends like this. this guy that just got more debt than he could ever find more debt than he could ever accrue on his own, forgiven. It says in verse 28, right after that he went out. That same slave found one of his other fellow slaves who owed him 100 silver coins. That is three months worth of wages. So he grabbed him by the throat and started to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe me. Then his fellow slave threw him down and begged him, be patient with me and I'll repay you. But he refused. Instead he went out and threw him in prison until he repaid the debt. When his fellow slave saw... What he'd done, they were very upset and went and told their Lord everything that had taken place. Verse 32, then the Lord called the first slave in and said, you evil slave, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not have shown mercy to your fellow slave just as I showed it to you? And in anger, his Lord turned him over to the prison guards to torture him until he repaid all he owed. He gave him justice. So also my heavenly Father will do to you if each of you does not forgive your brother from the heart. So let's, hold on just a second, this is a tough text, because it could sound like if you don't forgive your brother, sister, mother, father, son, daughter, then God's not going to forgive you. And right now you're thinking, I didn't forgive somebody yesterday, you know? Oh my goodness. That's not the point. There's something in the scriptures, and there's something in how we interpret the scriptures called proof texting, right? What that means is, I pick one verse or one phrase or sometimes one word out of a verse and I use that to prove the point that I want to be true. Proof texting is taking text out of context. Proof texting is not good. When you read the scriptures, what you have to do is look at the meta narrative of scripture and say, what is this saying about God and does this fit in with everything else we know about God? To go back to the spanking example, it's like if you walked down the road, saw a dad spank his son and assume he's an abuser without knowing the rest of the story. And maybe he's a very loving dad, but you caught him in a moment of justice. Proof texting is not a fair way to read the text in any capacity, in any form of communication. Pick one half of one text out of a conversation with your husband or wife and see how that goes, right? Proof texting is not good. And so what we see in the scriptures... Time and time again is not this equation of if you do, God gives. That's never the way it works. In Romans, it talks about that God, while we were sinners, decided to love us before we moved. In 1 John 4, it says it well. It says that we love because God first loved us. What we see throughout the entirety of Scripture, from Genesis 1 when God started this thing, to Genesis 12 when he picked Abraham, to all the kings along the way, to all the prophets, to Jesus himself, what we see is a God who moved first every single time. By grace we are saved through faith, not that we should boast. So when we read this text, what we can't do is use this text to go against what we know about the character of God everywhere else. That's proof texting. And some faiths do this, some faiths look at this. The Catholic faith is one of them that says, look, you got to earn something. Works is part of it. But what Jesus does when he says that blessed are you who are merciful for you will be shown mercy is he's making a simple point. That if you know mercy, if you understand the depth of God's mercy for you, the injustice you mounted against him, and the breadth from which he forgave, if you get that, and if you are always thinking of that, you cannot help but let mercy overflow onto the relationships and the context and the culture around you. John Piper says it like this mercy comes from mercy. Our mercy to each other comes from God's mercy towards us. It's not that we've earned it, it's that we've experienced it and that it overflows. The Bedlington's aren't loud because they need to earn a space in the family, they're loud because it's who they are. If you've experienced the mercy of God, he's saying, then may that overflow to all of your life. So if you're saying, I didn't show mercy this morning, he's saying, then show mercy when you leave this place. It's a challenge then to, again, live out the values and the rhythms and what's important in the family of God. He's saying, this is who my family is. Because you've been shown such a great mercy, be merciful to other people. That is what we're about. So in one sense, it's a challenge. In the other sense, he's saying, remember that mercy is great and you've been shown a great mercy. John Stott says this. I love that he said, nothing moves us to forgive like the wondering knowledge that we have ourselves been forgiven. Nothing proves more clearly we have been forgiven that our own readiness to forgive, to forgive and to be forgiven, to show mercy and to receive mercy, these belong together. But mercy is hard. It's hard because, like our story with the one slave that gets let go, and that same day you find somebody that, that treated him unjustly, you forget the depth of your need. He forgot that he owed so much money and he thought he was just in not being merciful, and he was. But he thought that not showing that mercy was a good idea. And, and the master said, you missed the point. Mercy experience is there, so mercy might be shown. That it's what it, that's what it's like in my kingdom. I love it because so often I buy into this false narrative that in some way I'm better than, in some way I've earned, in some way I'm here because I've done, I've done, I've done. And what that enables me to do is walk by people in need and say, well, there's a reason why you're there and I'm here and I forget that I need to. Blessed are the merciful. Jesus says, My family will step into those moments and act. I want to end with a story that I actually heard in seminary. It's kind of folklore in seminary, and I looked it up this week, and it turns out it's true, which is always good. I probably would have said it either way just so you have confidence in me. But um, long story short, there's a prof who gave a final exam. And. And this reminds me of the priests and the Levites who, you know, had good things to do. And so why don't we show mercy? Because we have things to do, and they're good, and they're rich, and they're worthwhile, and they're probably going to the temple to do their their priestly or scribal duty. And we forget that God calls us into action and not just compassion. And so this prof was giving his final exam. I'll read it. So students at a seminary enrolled in a class on the life of Jesus. And they arrived at their classroom to take the final exam. They found a notice informing them that the test will be given in another building on the other side of campus. As the students rush across the campus to their new room, each is accosted by a forlorn beggar who asks for their help. None of the students stop for him, however. They all rush by, anxious to arrive at their exam on time. The instructor is waiting for the students when they finally reach the classroom. He explains to them that the beggar was an actor planted by him to test their reactions because the students did not demonstrate that they had acquired any mercy or compassion while studying the life of Jesus. They all failed the exam. (laughs) Okay, so let's put that in context. I'm not saying like God's going to fail you, right? What I'm saying is it's a reminder of what his family values, and that's what the Beatitudes do. He's saying, hey, remember, if you need to work on your mercy, maybe you got a love problem, and maybe you need to remember how much you were loved. If you've got a mercy problem, if we don't stop and, and, and help alleviate the consequences of sin with the people around us, family, friends, kids, fill in the blank at work, what he's saying is, if people look at you in whatever sphere you're at, do they describe you as merciful? Because that's how Jesus describes his family. I love this text because it's simple and it's cutting. I love this text because it calls us into an action and so often faith is subjective I love it because he's saying, hey, you want to know what my family looks like? It looks like mercy. And mercy experience leads towards mercy shown. And so might we be a community that grows the influence of mercy in our lives, in our churches, in the flower mound area. Do something about it when we have compassion for people. Blessed are the merciful, for they will show others mercy. Let's pray for us. God, I'm thankful that you are merciful. I'm thankful that you are a God who steps into and alleviates us from the misery of our sin, that your love motivated your compassion and led towards action. I'm thankful for the mercy that I find in Jesus. My prayer is that I remember what that is when I see somebody that's hurting too. My prayer is in a world full of goods that I can drive to church that I can take care of my family that I remember that God called us to step into places and show mercy as well because that's what his family's all about so as we leave today might might you well up inside of us a desire to do good might you well up a desire inside of us to show mercy might you well up a desire inside of us even when it's hard or inconvenient to show others that God is merciful towards us because when they see it they know that God is good too Might we reflect the family rhythms of Jesus in his kingdom? Might we be a people of mercy that is driven by our great love for others? And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.